HK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. The S&P declines the most in three weeks as the dollar rallies on economic data. Fisher says that the Fed could slow rate rises if global growth falters. And China surpasses France as the biggest perpetual bond seller this year, creating $15.7 billion of new debt that has never to be repaid and is classed as equity. Well, all uh, 10 major S&P 500 sectors were lower with a drop in oil prices weighing on energy shares and transportation stocks. The dollar was up 1.3% against a basket of major currencies as commodity prices fell. More on markets this morning with uh, our markets guest, Oriental Capital Researchers, Andrew Collier. We'll also talk with Allocated Bullion Solutions, Seamus Donahue on the bullion market and uh, the impact of China, the China government's latest gold sector fund. And finally, the EIU's uh, Kevin Plumberg on the gradual shift of Asian business from China to Southeast Asia. Enzio von File of Private Capital is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning. Enzio. Morning to you. So, uh, Enzio, this dollar rise, do you see it continuing to happen? Oh, yes, I think so, because with the Fed, in our humble opinion, raising rates in September, the bets are pretty clear that the, the interest rate differential to the yen and to the euro has to rise, so the dollar becomes more attractive. So, of course, people buy more into it, in my mind. Yeah, U.S. stocks uh, fell the most in three weeks as uh, better-than-forecast economic data and comments by Federal Reserve officials bolstered bets for an interest rate increase this year. Bloomberg's Joe Weisenthal has more on Bloomberg Markets. The story of this year so far has been data disappointment. The first quarter was a massive disappointment. GDP came in really low. Everything, with the exception of the labor data, was bad. Then today, sort of, but, you know, stocks raced to right highs. Right, we ignored all of that. Today sort of felt like the opposite. We had a really strong run of data in the morning, solid on housing, solid on manufacturing, solid on confidence, solid on uh, capital goods orders. And yet, here we are, market down. So it sort of felt like this sort of good news is bad news. Maybe this brings back some of the discussion about you know, the Fed rate hikes and stuff like that. And like, you know, we're still very close to a record high. Yes. Today is not dramatic. It's not a huge sell-off. But it was a, you know, a different flavor than we've seen for a while. All three major indices fell by 1%. The Dow Jones uh, was down to 18,041. The S&P 500 was down to 2,104 and the Nasdaq to 5,032. The dollar strength combined with the sell-off shows that the market is a little more concerned about the big picture. John Mackey is a senior market strategist at Morgan Stanley and he discusses how the timetable for a right hike... Uh, Rate hike. Twisted tongue there. Rate hike from the Fed Reserve could impact markets and the economy. I mean, the markets obviously are paying attention to it, so we have to pay attention to it. But our view for some time has been that tapering was tightening. 
right? So we're 12 months in, you know, 18 months into this tightening process. So whether they tighten in September or December, not a big deal in the big scheme of things, mm -hmm. but uh, the market will pay attention to it, so we will. But you've seen the yield curve flattening. We're sort of, you know, in the middle, mid stages of this tightening process. So we actually take the view that the actual hike itself could be a good thing for the economy and a good thing for the markets versus all this nervousness around when is Yellen going to hike and what color sweater is she wearing today? So what if it doesn't happen in September? How would that change his view? That would change our view on the on economic growth, right? Yellen has been very clear that the first quarter weakness we saw was transitory. They expect to pick up in the second half. If we don't get that pickup, they probably delay the hike, um, and that probably has a negative, you know, negative, um, you know, outlook. That means a negative outlook for the U.S. economy, and that's bad for stocks. But should this matter to people who are allocating for the long term? Absolutely not. It shouldn't matter at all. It's one hike. It's 25 bips. But I'll, I'll give you the positive spin on it, right? A, potentially a stamp of approval on the economy. So the market's like, all right, the Fed thinks the economy's doing well enough to hike rates. Um, but I also think that all those savers out there that have been getting nothing in their savings accounts and demographics, right? We have a lot mm -hmm. of older people in our society that are relying on income finally get 25 bips. No one's running a victory lap over 25 bips. But the implication is that that turns into 50, 75, 100. And so it could be a boost to consumer spending. Um, so we actually think that the hike could potentially be a positive for the markets. So uh, Federal Reserve Vice Chairman Stanley Fisher says, however, that it's still a wait-and-see game. Our processes are not date-determined. They are data-determined. We'll wait and see what happens. We don't have to announce we're going to do it in September. If the economy is growing very, very slowly, we'll wait. The economy is growing fast. We'll move uh, quicker. What do you think, Enzio? A lot of uh, mixed signals there. Investors uh, concerned on one hand about uh, a rate hike sooner rather than later. Yet uh, Stanley Fisher reassures us that, uh, well, they'll just wait and see. One always has to remember that the FOMC is a group of highly intelligent people who each have their own views. And Janet Yellen does not really determine the, the date of the rate hike, she has to achieve consensus within this FOMC. So it's perfectly fine for this extremely erudite Professor Fisher to say what he does. My bets are still that the economic time in America is improving and one has to look beyond a 25 basis point hike to just say that earnings probably will be improving going forward because of increased demand. And in terms of how this is going to impact in the long run, do you agree with Morgan Stanley's Mackey? Absolutely. I think that he makes a great deal of sense. I would add to that that there are lagged effects of monetary policy that need to be factored into the equation. That's why I'm more on the September rate hike business. Also, the fact that the core CPI in America is up by 2.6% annualized, that's a four-year high. So there are pressures building. But again, look beyond that 25 BIP stuff and see that the economic time is improving. That's better for earnings and thus for the market. Okay, Enzio, rating companies, uh, you know, switching over to China here, don't see uh, China's perpetual bond pileup as a cause for celebration. Chinese companies now have at least $53.2 billion of the notes of equity on their balance sheets, reducing leverage on paper. And in reality, debt burdens can be just as onerous because perpetuals typically have coupon increases after a few years that act as an incentive to repay the 
bonds. That's what the uh, accounting firms say. And accounting standards, of course, treat these as equity, but rating companies treat them as debt. What really is the difference to the investor? Ultimately, the risk of whether he or she is going to get their money back. And my own view on this would be, as you ask, is that we really have to see whether whether China is going into a Japanese-style implosion of debt or a Lehman-style explosion and contagion worldwide of its debt masses. That, I think, is the real issue from a macro perspective. And which do you think it is? I think it's going to be more of a Japanese implosion because I still think that despite the very large numbers bandied about, especially with China's inclusion in the MSCI, the FTSE Russell Index, and I think in the SDR very shortly, it seems to me as if the overall net foreign debt of the Chinese companies is still remarkably low. Now, uh, Enzio, in a world where you know investors really fear the risk of defaults in China, where does this put us? I don't think it's really such a concern. I mean, as long as you are positioned with decently run companies in China, if there is such a thing or if there are such things, and in other words, if they're transparent in their numbers, then... I'm of the view that actually the China growth story has to remain for the simple view that there's a political imperative to maintain the livelihood and the veracity of the Communist Party. So that's why this recent news that they were going to um, increase the public spending by some two trillion yen, uh, won, excuse me, uh, is good news, in other words, the private financing of this two trillion one, because that shows that the government really does want to keep on pumping things up and getting the growth going. So I'm, without being blue-eyed about it, I think that there are plenty of good spots in that China story. They're not all rotten companies, after all. All right, let's bring in Andrew Collier, who is the Managing Director of Orient Capital Research. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So, Andrew, we're talking about uh, China's uh, pileup of perpetual bonds here. You know, after Kaiser, Evergrande uh, Real Estate has the most perpetuals among property companies, and they're trading at 90 cents on the dollar on concern that, uh, you know, the company's finances might deteriorate after new home prices fell in 69 out of 70 cities in April. That was from a year earlier. Uh, What do you think about the risks these are posing? Well, I think people are too optimistic about the property sector in general. Uh, whether you're using perpetuals to raise capital or bonds, uh, there's going to be problems because the uh, overall market is starting to decline and probably will decline further in the future. In the first quarter, we saw land sales down, I think, uh, 33%. That's an indication that the uh, one of the leading indicators, which is land, is, is starting to drop like a, like a stone. So I think that the the property market bubble, we've got further to fall, and that's certainly going to impact the the financing risk for the uh, big developers. And now, specifically, you know, with a view to property perpetuals, uh, Andrew Lamb of BDO, an accounting firm, says that the accounting of these borrowings, while allowed under accounting rules, could have the effect of not showing the total size of the debt mountain. Do you agree? Uh, I'm not an expert on the perpetuals market. Um, I do know that there are uh, loopholes in some of the accounting rules where that's probably uh, accurate, uh, meaning that there's forms of debt. And this is also in terms of uh, things like accounts receivables that are pushed off. 
uh, which are starting to grow, and other areas that really should be showing up on the uh, debt side of the equation but are not. So I think he's probably right, but uh, I can't comment about the perpetuals in particular. Enzio? I think that just to add to that, that the other point that has to always be made is that these markets don't necessarily reflect the economic realities because if this paper is very thinly traded, if it's very illiquid, then the price of a perpetual doesn't really say a lot. Okay, so, uh, you know, moving on to sort of shadow banking, uh, which has been uh, uh, one area where property companies certainly have gotten a lot of their financing. Uh, Andrew, you wrote recently that insurance companies are China's new shadow banks. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. I mean, the government uh, was, wanted to crack down on all this lending outside of the banking system last year, and they sort of did a pretty decent job. Uh, total social, social, social financing uh, was down about 24% in the first quarter. But what we're finding is um, that it's being crowded out by other forms of uh, investment outside the formal sector. Uh, first, you've got uh, just phys- fiscal expenditure, which is um, uh, government spending, which is formal. And then, but you have other companies like the insurance industry has suddenly decided that they're going to step up uh, to the plate and become big investors in a lot of local debt. Uh, so we, we did some analysis by looking at the insurance company balance sheet and talking to some insurance people and found out that their uh, investment in alternative assets is up 24% in the beginning part of the year. And most of this is going into local government uh, projects. Um, and the insurance firms are now one of the largest uh, investors to the tune of $1.1 trillion in infrastructure in China. And no one knows this. And certainly if I were out there buying an insurance policy, I'd be very nervous. Now, when you say infrastructure, can you tell us specifically, perhaps give us some examples of some of the kinds of projects? Um, yeah, I mean, you've got a situation where uh, you might have a uh, Jiangsu project, or Guangdong um, has a desperate need for $2.3 trillion in infrastructure in the current five-year plan. And so insurance companies have started saying, oh, we can give you the money. So they did $20, $29 billion in the first half of 2014. Uh, by the end of 2014, it was up to $45.3 billion for 12 infrastructure projects uh, in energy ports and highways and so forth. So they're, they're, they've decided that it's a good long-term play. Uh, I was just at a dinner with some fund managers in Shanghai on Saturday, and one of the uh, guys runs uh, insurance money, and he said, yeah, we love this. It's high-return activity, but it's very risky because most of the stuff is not going to generate enough cash to pay back. Andrew, on that score, I'm intrigued whether you feel that we're heading towards a Japanese-style implosion of debt on account of so much of this being domestic debt or a Lehman-style contagion that has all sorts of global ricochet effects because of the inclusion of the remember the probable inclusion of the SDR in the MSCI for the markets and the FTSE Russell. Big question. Yes, <laughs> you have two minutes. Uh, yeah, two minutes. Uh, well, the, on, the, on, the, on the macro side, I don't think we've got the same kind of global contagion that we see from Lehman for the reason you said, that it's a domestic incident. There are linkages through the stock markets, as we've seen in Hong Kong, uh, and there is some mild linkages with uh, the renminbi globally. The bigger issue is the banks, uh, Western and Hong Kong banks, that have lent about a trillion U.S. dollars into China. That's the part that makes me nervous. Domestically, uh, yes, we've got a, we'll get close to a Japanese style slowdown, um, but I don't think it'll be as bad as Japan because for reasons having to do with the Chinese political system, they seem to be a little more efficient and moving capital around and making adjustments uh, to, to their credit. They're actually been doing some pretty good things over the last couple of years. 
So I'm a little less pessimistic about a, 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 a trap liquidity trap that they had in Japan. Andrew, uh, one question uh, before we wrap. Uh, you know, these infrastructure projects, you know, that you talk about being funded by the insurance companies and that nobody knows about, how aware is the domestic Chinese investor? I mean, do they have a clue? Uh, will we see them sort of putting their money into uh, these kinds of projects in the way they have been with the stock market? Um, I, I don't think they have a clue. Uh, I think that the insurance industry in particular, and there's some other industries that I believe are similar, are, are, are sort of hidden in a cloud, a fog of confusion. And in, in addition to which, a lot of local investors are very optimistic about Beijing's ability to, to come in and recapitalize everything. So I don't think they are aware of this. And the, the extent of the property downturn that we're facing um, is, is something that the people are just starting to get a, their head around. Um, uh, the central bank is aware of this because they're very astute. But people, the investors are not. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Andrew. That's Andrew Collier, and he is the managing director of Orient Capital Research. Thank you. The time is now 8.20 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers before we move on to our next segment. The Nikkei is a down three-tenths of a percent to 20,372. Australia's ASX 200 index uh, down 0.21% to 5,758. And Sol's Kospi also down half a percent to uh, uh, 2,133. Well, China uh, the, is... China is the biggest gold producer, as we all know. It has just announced a new international gold fund involving over 60 countries as members, and it's known as the New Silk Road. Allocated Bullion Solutions CEO Seamus Donahue joins us from Singapore now to tell us more. Good morning, Seamus. Good morning, yes. Hi. So, Seamus, this fund, uh, it's headed by the Shanghai Gold Exchange. How much is it expected to raise? I mean, the talk is it's going to be 100 billion uh, uh, won, about 16 billion dollars. Um, it basically has roughly 60 countries, um, largely those along the Silk Road, um, that are, have invested in it. And it's really a vehicle for central banks to invest and to create investment and development within the, the region, which uh, I guess um, historically would be the Silk Road, and which is now commonly referred to as kind of like the one, one belt, one road, which. Um, the president uh, announced a number of initiatives around earlier this year in, in March. So this is kind of the first clear indication of, uh, of a structure that to, to facilitate development in that area. Seamus, the gold, the price of gold has been largely range bound. Uh, do you see any signs of a break at all? Not at the moment. I mean, gold has been kind of in this in this very narrow kind of hundred hundred fifty dollar range for the last year and a half now, and there's no real signs to continue. I mean, I think that underlying that there's a lot of fundamental shifts going in the market, which long term I think could indicate which way it breaks. I think likely longer term to the upside, but I, I think that's really it's really a question of what's happening right now. Is there's not much focus on gold? Um, China is obviously, as you mentioned, the biggest gold producer, but also since 2013 because it's been become the biggest gold consumer. So what China does obviously has a big impact on the price of gold. And when the price is going sideways and China Chinese stocks are skyrocketing, there really isn't a lot of interest in, in buying physical precious metals. So we've seen actually, I think, if you look at the first quarter, demand in China is probably down um, down 10%, um, taking up some of that slack as India's reemerged as a buyer. They're up 15% in terms of consumption. 
but overall the appetite for gold is pretty much flat uh, year on year. Enzio? Seamus, going away from the Chinese demand story, what are the key drivers of the gold price on the, for the international investor, would you say? Well, I really think the key drivers are, well, there's two fundamental things, basically. Most of the consumption, most of the physical and demand is Asia. Um, that accounts for 60%. Um, one of the easiest vehicles to, to, to basically buy and invest in gold is are the ETFs in the U.S., so those are actually very good barometers, whether the, the, there's basically systemic concerns. Typically, the reason people invest in, in the West is systemic risk, want to diversify their hedge against financial assets. And that we've seen a lot of redemptions in that uh, in the ETF, obviously, since the highs in 2013. Um, this past quarter, we've actually seen one of the first inflows into that, so it's fairly constructive from a Western investor perspective. Um, but really... That has, if that is flat, I think we really take the price higher. We need Asian demand to pick up because it does account for 60% of that demand. So I really think here it's, um, I think there's a fundamental difference between Eastern and Western investment uh, ideas. I think in the in the West, basically, you already have very wealthy countries, developed countries. There's a big view about wealth preservation, and that's where gold typically enters as, as, a, as a choice. In the East, if I talk about Asia, where the economy is growing rapidly, it's really about uh, capital accumulation, and you're really not looking to hedge in that situation. You're looking to grow, so you're really chasing performance. You're looking for assets that are performing, and gold's just not performing right now. It's a bit chicken and egg, that argument, but as Chinese stocks are rallying, you're really not going to get a lot of folks there. The question is, you know, is there a bubble in some of these assets because there's a lot of inflows, all the increase in margin, number of brokerage accounts, et cetera? One can make the case, yes, but until you see it, see that change in that pricing and basically a retreat in the stocks, which actually sustains on the downside rather than a dip to buy. All right, Seamus, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this morning. Unfortunately, we're out of time. That's Seamus Donahue, okay. and he is the CEO of Allocated Bullion Solutions. By the end of this year, only construction waste will be deposited at the Southeast New Territories landfill in Chengquan O. The government has made other waste facilities available to receive other types of waste. To prepare for the new arrangement, waste collectors and property management should plan alternative routes and resolve contractual matters in advance. For inquiries, please contact the Environmental Protection Department at 2872-1727. The time is now 8.25 a.m. and the business landscape in Asia will change significantly over the next decade as companies in the region focus more on new growth opportunities in countries like Myanmar, Vietnam and Thailand and less on China. This is according to a new report from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Let's bring in uh, the EIU's editor, Kevin Lumberg, for more. Good morning, Kevin. Hi, good morning. So, Kevin, is it just factories that will shift, or is it other kinds of businesses uh, that are planning the move as well? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things that we found out in our study is that um, it's not just factories. We asked uh, respondents whether they're planning to build a factory or a new office um, in the next five to ten years in in different locations in Asia. And... um, one of the uh, biggest targets, actually the biggest target in the next 10 years, is Myanmar. And um, half of the respondents from the financial services and professional services industry uh, were planning to open a new office in Myanmar um, in, in 10 years. So it's not just 
production that's being moved uh, to some of these other locations in Southeast Asia. It's also services. Now, when you say financial services, are you talking about outsourced operations or, or back offices? I think it's, I think it's actually um, both back office and front office. One of the um, barriers or obstacles that the respondents were saying about expansion efforts in the, uh, in the so-called Mekong Delta region is um, the di- diversity of consumer preferences. So this is something that becomes an obstacle when, it, not for necessarily for back office operations, but for, but for front office as well. Enzio? Just a question whether you, what, what are the key drivers pushing more investment into Southeast Asia? Would you say is it cost, is it end demand, or what from your studies have you found? I think that's a great question. Um, one of the, um, one of, what we try to do in the report is, is downplay um, what's often cited as a, as a, a driver for, of you know, the, the cost driver. Um, you know, if, if it were true that uh, cost was you know, the main driver for a lot of businesses in Asia, then you wouldn't, see, you wouldn't necessarily see um, se- over 70% of, of respondents say that they're planning to build a new factory in China in the next five years, particularly with labor costs going up. I mean, I think the reality is that labor costs are going up in China, but relatively, you know, when you look at it relatively, it's still a cheaper place to um, invest in some in some other parts of the world. On a ten-year basis, though, I think it's interesting that the complexion of, of um, investment changes so much to focus on Southeast Asia, and there you have a nice constellation of factors, including lower costs, including um, growing consumer demand from a, from an expanding middle class, and access to natural resources. All right, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. That's Kevin Plumberg, and he is an editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Let's take a quick look at the numbers now before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down two-tenths of a percent to 20,391. Australia's ASX 200 down half a percent to 5,742. And Seoul's Kospi also down eight-tenths of a percent to 2,126. In currencies, the Euro is valued at 1.08 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 122.99 Japanese yen and one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 93 cents and also one US dollar and 53 cents. Gold currently stands at $1,187.50 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $63.97. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of our show. Uh, Enzo, do you have some parting thoughts? Yeah, I think just from an asset allocation, you want to be buying into the excess supply of money in China, Hong Kong, and Europe. You want to be buying the U.S. dollars, and you definitely want to be selling gold off the back of a stronger dollar. All right, Enzio, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Enzio von File, investment strategist at Private Capital. And if you're interested in U.S. trade relations with uh, China, then uh, our regular Monday contributor, Barry Wood, is actually uh, talking about that. Uh, that specific topic, that's this morning, later this morning at the American Chamber of Commerce. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hura, wrapping up for Money for Nothing. Let's take a quick look now at... Uh, the weather forecast for today, which will be cloudy with uh, rain, definitely chances of rain later in the day. Time for the news summary with Samantha Butler.
A combined military campaign is underway to drive Islamic State militants out of the western province of Anbar. A Pentagon spokesman said as a first stage, probing operations were taking place close to the occupied city of Ramadi. But he declined to confirm a Shia militia group's assertion that the city was already surrounded by pro-government forces. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue reports. The Pentagon spokesman Colonel Steve Warren said that Iraqi forces and the largely Shia Popular Mobilisation Front had begun what he called probing and reconnaissance operations close to Ramadi, moving out of the town of Habaniya. But he was critical of the name given to the operation by the Shia militias, which focused on a grandson of the Prophet, particularly important to Shiites. That was unhelpful, said Colonel Warren. Washington has long been concerned about the potential for sectarian conflict in largely Sunni Anbar and is also trying to recruit Sunni tribes in the area to assist with the fighting. The internationally recognised Prime Minister of Libya, Abdullah Al-Thini, has escaped unharmed after would-be assassins peppered his car with bullets in the eastern city of Tobruk. Mr Al-Thini told the pan-Arab news channel Al Arabiya that he was lucky to be alive. My car left the House of Representatives headquarters